Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me for this episode is author and dream researcher Sarah Janes. Sarah has been an enthusiastic lucid dreamer since childhood and has written about dreams, dream culture and the anthropology of dreaming for a number of academic journals, The Idler Magazine and more. Sarah's first book, Initiation into Dream Mysteries, Drinking from the Pool of Mnemosyne, was published recently and explores the ancient history and philosophy of dream therapy and sleep medicine, beginning in deepest antiquity through to ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt and Greece. It also has seven stories in it which are inspired by Sarah's own dream incubation practices. These stories are designed to act as psychomagic narratives to influence your dreams and take you on a self-initiatory conscious dream quest. In the interview, we talk about how Sarah's interest in dreams and dreaming began, and then move on to discuss the history of dream therapy and interpretation in ancient times, along with examples of that such as temple sleep and dream incubation. We also chat about the role and importance of divine entities in these practices, and what the use of dream therapy in ancient societies can inform us on about the worldview and reality of those cultures as a whole. Our conversation was recorded in November 2022. Enjoy! Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. How did your interest in dreaming and the culture surrounding that begin? Well, I've always been very interested in dreaming since I was a child. I had a lot of very intense, interesting dreams as a kid, was really into lucid dreaming, into exploring my dream world. I used to draw maps of the world that I went to when I had dreams at night. And then I've, I think because of that, it kind of fed into my life kind of culturally and aesthetically anyway. So I've always been drawn to anything and everything to do with dreaming. I always loved books about dreams. I loved Alice in Wonderland. I loved films about dreams. I'm a big fan of Jodorowsky and uh, David Lynch and directors like that. So I think it's a bit of a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy and a feedback system that I've created because I've always been drawn towards dream media, culture, film, art and um, books and things like this. And then uh, a few years ago, I met uh, the... Um, psychologist Dr David Luke who's the senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Greenwich and he specializes in exceptional human experiences I think is what he calls his speciality and he investigates all sorts of things from psychedelic states trance states near-death experiences lucid dreaming all this kind of thing and I was hosting I host a lecture 
series in Hastings, where I live on the south coast of England. And um, I've had all sorts of speakers talking about things from sort of sex robots, AI, psychology, um, uh, lucid dreaming, ancient cultures, the ancient Mesopotamian Mesopotamian city of Ur was one of our topics but yeah so I get all these academics researchers and lecturers in and David Luke was one of the first people who gave a talk on uh, DMT and psychedelic science and he we got talking afterwards and I was talking about lucid dreaming and we were comparing kind of dream states and drug states and psychedelic experience and um, he was telling me that there's a sleep temple in England actually a place called Lydney Park in Gloucestershire and this is um a British Romano temple. So it's a Celtic deity um, and it's built in the Roman style. And the Rome, the Celtic deity was called Nodens and um, it was excavated by the archaeologists Tessa Wheeler and Mortimer Wheeler. And um, their assistant on this job was actually um, Tolkien, who obviously became famous later on for writing Lord of the Rings. And he was really inspired by this dig. They uncovered this temple on the top of a little hill overlooking the River Severn. And um, Tolkien was super interested in ancient languages and he was he came up with various ideas and interpretations of the God of Nodens. And so this massively intrigued me because I've always been fascinated in ancient culture. I actually run a, a lecture series called Explorers Egyptology, a, a YouTube series, um, but I was doing live events as well. And um, so this was seemed to me to be like my perfect niche um, the combination of dreams and ancient cultures. And I've kind of not looked back since that point, really, because um, I love exploring ancient cultures and especially in that kind of relatable context of dreaming, because there's so many texts in the ancient world that are propaganda texts, or you can't check their validity. But there's something about dream texts, like the everyday dream recordings that gives you a particular window onto the sort of psychology and mindset of ancient people in a way that no other written material really does. So yeah, it's just a huge, huge passion of mine and kind of always has been, but more recently it feels like um, I've, I've got this particular focus and clarity on, on what it is I do. Yeah, I can totally understand why that is. So when you started um, researching about the the use and the role of dreams in these ancient cultures did it remind you of your early experience with dreams the learning to lucid dream and and I was it was fascinating there to hear you talk about drawing maps of of, of the places that you dreamed Does, did that feel like you were do, doing something that was similar to an ancient practice I'm not sure I guess in terms of what I've discovered about the idea of ancient dreams often revolves around this idea that dreams occur in this other realm, in this other place where it's possible to meet divine beings and also deceased people. So um, there's definitely an element that the dreaming is this realm, which I always very strongly felt it to be when I was young. But I think that that in part is is kind of self-created because when I would dream about fantastic places, I was drawn to to record them and draw them and map them out. And then I would imagine myself in them and, you know, as a child, you're really sort of prone to daydreaming. And I could fantasize and daydream myself in these places very easily. And then it was really easy to get back into them as a dream. And then I kind of slowly built up this world. And I think for me anyway, my experience of dreaming is that the dreaming landscape is a kind of 
memory palace where the landscape, the architect, architecture, the form kind of encodes your personality. Like I've got a real sense of, of my dreams being a kind of oeuvre, you know, like a film director. Um, <laughs> that, and, and I think of dreams in that way. They, they to me, are this expression of my personality and, and my soul. And um, so the landscape in that respect as being this different realm is definitely something I recognise when I read about ancient dreamers. And uh, one other thing as well is this description of divine dreams that you get a lot across cultures. I mean, I'm especially interested in the Western esoteric tradition, but also reaching into places like Anatolia um, and then the ancient Near East, Egypt and Greece. And you definitely see like thematic trends and motifs in all of these cultures where um, there is definitely this common thread of dreams having a divine potential essentially and lucidity for me is often about experiencing euphoria and bliss and when I read these descriptions of divine dreams in the ancient world it seems to me to point to lucidity and I would I would explain a divine dream a a lucid dream as being divine euphoric blissful and there is definitely something about the lucid experience that creates this embodied sense of ecstasy which is frequently described in ancient dream testimonies mm. so in in the past in in uh in ancient greece and egypt were people taught how to lucid dream or or was it something that they that people tended to have more of a, a knack for and now in the in the modern world it's sort of like a a lost ability almost it's an interesting question because there, it's impossible to know really if um, people had more lucid dreams in the ancient world. But I mean, it's clear to me that our dreaming powers are diminishing, generally speaking, through our overuse of technology and bad sleep hygiene and bad sleeping habits and a kind of lack of appreciation for dreaming, essentially. You know, there are we're so incredibly influenced by the media and the visual and audio imagery that we take in every day. And I think that creates, you know, I always say to people, so a lot of people come to my workshops, for example, I do sleep hypnosis workshops and say, Oh, I have like terrible nightmares all the time. And the first thing I say is, do you watch horror films? Because a lot of people love horror films and then they wonder why they have nightmares. But I think, you know, everything we see, everything we scroll past takes up some space in our memory palace and when people were living much more simple lives they tend to have more vivid dreams I think if especially if they're surrounded by nature I mean novel places create more exciting dreams you know like when you go on holiday and you're sleeping in a in a new bed and you in unfamiliar surroundings or you've seen something really beautiful you tend to have different more vivid dreams in those kind of situations that are easier to remember as well so um I think there there is the possibility that ancient people dreamed more lucidly more of the time. I mean, it would certainly um, it would certainly explain why dreaming was considered so important in the ancient world because it really does get mentioned a lot. Hmm. And I'm I'm wondering as well if with with that in mind and the importance of dreams is does that sort of give an insight into the relationship that those cultures had with uh, with their gods i mean not not just in the aspect of things like temple sleep and and dream sanctuaries and the deities that you mention in the upcoming book that you have and and in your work in general um 
Do you, do you think that that gives an insight into the reality of these beings to them? Yeah, I think that's quite likely. I mean, my theory is that dreams encouraged religious ideas and encouraged ideas about life after death, because one of the most striking experiences in a lucid dream or in a dream, in any dream, is having an encounter with a deceased person. And when you've lost someone that you really love and you have a meaningful encounter with them in the dream, it's a really incredible experience or can be. And I think especially the reality, the realness of those kinds of experiences could have led ancient people to, to, to believe that somewhere the dead were perpetuating, you know, in this other realm that was accessible through dreaming. So, yeah, I think there's something really lovely about this idea of dreams offering us a portal into divine realms and into kind of eternity and immortality in some ways as well. I mean, dreams and the goddess Mnemosyne, the goddess of, of memory, the personification of memory and remembrance was the goddess that was evoked sometimes as part of the last ritual when you were in a sleep sanctuary in ancient Greece. And I don't think that her role as the goddess of memory is just about remembering the dream. I think it's also about remembering that you're dreaming within the dream and trying to encourage a lucid experience within the dream state. Mm, yeah, definitely. Uh, last year, I wrote a book about it was about the history of magic by Chris Gosden. And in that, he talks about sort of the importance of people burying their dead as sort of the, the point at which magical ritual starts to begin. And reading reading an excerpt from your new book, it, I, I wonder about the relationship between the traditions that you write about and, and magic. Do you think that they were connected and or or how were they connected, I guess, might be a better question. Yeah, absolutely. I think dreaming is the ideal um, state for magical manifestation. And in a lucid dream in particular, especially if you have some control over it, especially in the dream incubation practices where you kind of seed the hypnagogic um, state with suggestion, you can create whatever you want in that dream world. And, um, you know, also time acts differently in dreams so you can have incredibly rich incredibly rewarding creative like visually spectacular dreams um and i think that the nature of dreams for ancient people would have reflected their ideas about the gods and their views of reality and the meaningfulness of life and and the the ideals of the time and i think that dreaming is absolutely like vital to the idea of magic because it's a place where you can see your thoughts creating reality all the time and um there was very much this idea that you could receive revelations omens oracles divinatory insight through dreams by um divine intervention so i think that's really important mm. so let's talk a little bit about some of the main things that would happen uh in these ancient cultures relative to, to dreaming. And what, one of them is uh, the idea of, of temple sleep. Can you just talk a little bit about that and how, how that would work for the person who was living in, in that time, in that, in that culture? Well, I think temple sleep probably has extraordinarily ancient um, origins and probably even 
before people were building structures of ritual significance, they were sleeping in sacred sites such as caves, springs on the tops of mountains. And because these places were portals to the heavenly realms of the gods and the underworld realms of chthonic entities and earth spirits and earth energies as well. So I think that temple sleep is really a development of that idea of the cosmos and the earth being sacred and heaven, you know, and divine and having power um, of being a living being of the earth being a living being and um, the cosmos being a living language really. So um, with the first ideas of temple sleep, I mean, one thing we have in Anatolia, which I think I sort of start my idea of dream incubation in Anatolia in the settlement of Catalhoyuk, which is not, which follows on from the development of Gobekli Tepe in Anatolia, the the clusters of little dwellings that were built there, they are fascinating. They're these beautiful little homes. They're all accessible through the roof. And although they're very highly decorated, very symbolic wall decorations, paintings, aurochs, horns, and things like this, when they were first discovered, I think archaeologists thought that they were um, ritual centres. But it was later thought that they're all actual actually homes where people lived all the time so in a way the home is the first temple and, and in Catalhoyuk you see that in every little dwelling there are these raised platforms for the occupants to sleep on and underneath them are intramural burials so burials inside the dwelling and the living pot the living occupants are sleeping on top of them and I think that this speaks of an idea that to sleep on top of the remains, at top of the bones of your ancestors or on people that have proved you have died, that you can be closer to them and perhaps contact them in the dream space. That's just my intuition and my idea about it. But it seems kind of unnecessary otherwise to have intramural burials because there may also have been secondary burials. So they were buried um away from the buildings, first of all, so that the flesh would and the muscles would all decompose. And then once they were just bones, they were moved back into the house. And then some people think that they were, I think it's excarnation when they're um, picked clean by vultures. So either way, there's definitely an intentional um, idea behind having the sleeping platforms on top of these intramural burials. And then from Anatolia, moving into the ancient Near East, the idea of temple sleep is really that any temple that is dedicated to a particular god or goddess or divine being is a sacred sanctuary of that being. And therefore, if you sleep within that sacred sanctuary, then they can appear to you in their dream. And that's essentially the idea that's taken through ancient the ancient Near East into ancient Egypt and really kind of expanded upon and maybe even monetized, like made into a big cultural phenomenon by um, the developments of the Asclepian temples in ancient Greece, which became huge. There are hundreds of them all around the ancient Greek world. They were incredibly successful, rich, um, beautifully designed, incredibly expensive architecture, uh, and really famous and well-known. And they were the healing sanctuaries of the ancient Greek world because the ancient Greek concept of healing is all about harmony. And so they were like spas, really, for dreaming, for purging, catharsis. And if you think about most 
most conditions, most conditions, most illnesses will um, write themselves after a significant, you know, after a period of time. And if you're in a beautiful natural setting where you're drinking pure water, you're having cold water baths because Asclepius was keen on cold water baths, um, purging and fasting, eating healthy food and um, purging emotionally through art and speaking and singing and dancing, then you'll probably get better <laughs> anyway in most instances. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you, you use that comparison. I was, I was going to ask for a modern version of of this sort of thing and um well, beautific uh, butlins is how i see it you know there's like an amphitheater there <laughs> there's um beautiful pools for you to bathe in there's like natural spring water there's performances art and poetry are considered to be incredibly important so yeah the therapeutic they're a bit like the kind of um butlins well, they oh no that's yellow coats is heidi high butlins is maybe blue blue or red, red coats <laughs> they're right. equivalent of red coats oh, okay yeah i mean so a lot of modern sort of spa retreats don't have like a, a prominent spiritual aspect to them and it sounds as though these places did so so what sort of role did nemusini and asclepius play directly in places like this or were they sort of the i mean you talk a little bit about nemusini earlier but i'm, I'm just wondering how they sort of um their role directly in the the dreams and the and the the treatments that people might have received well Asclepius is described as the divine physician and there was definitely this idea that the gods were superior to ordinary mortal doctors and the ideal occurrence when you visited a sleep temple is that during your dream incubation session in the Abaton, which was like a special, sometimes dormitory, or it could be a smaller chamber where you go to have your divine dream. And also it's worth bearing in mind that this isn't like going to sleep for the night. This is you're lying down waiting for a dream, which is quite different. It's quite close to a kind of hypnotic trance in a way. And um, certainly we know that the ancient Greeks were using opium as were a lot of other ancient cultures as well. So this would certainly kind of carry people off on this. Um, what did I read a description of the opium fumigation experience as being kind of soul tranquility and carrying people off on this soul tranquility into a, a hypnagogic reverie perhaps so it could have been like a lucid dream experience. It could have been a very sort of vivid hypnagogic experience. Um, I'm sure that there were elements of euphoria and bliss if Asclepius was encountered in a lucid state. I mean, um, the thing is, when you were in these sleep temples, they were they were really um, working with hypnotic suggestion all the time and suggestion. So. All over the sanctuary, there are all these dedications, these plaques, these testimonies to the success of an Asclepius um, appearing to someone in a dream and healing them. So the ideal scenario would be that during your dream, during your sacred divine dream at the sleep temple, the god Asclepius would appear to you and uh, perhaps perform some miraculous healing upon you. And the, the ideal outcome would be that you would be spontaneously healed and there are lots of accounts of this like you know blind people suddenly being able to see but really also very strange accounts like things like a woman who was pregnant for four years suddenly giving birth to a healthy four-year-old boy who proceeded to get get up and wash himself and 
clothe himself and things like this. So it's fascinating. Um, I think there's something in this this idea of having a like visual psychic target. You know, the sanctuaries would be covered in images of Asclepius and his family and statues of the gods. Um, Asclepius's symbol is the staff with a serpent entwined around it and snakes were allowed to wander freely around the sanctuary as well so I don't think it would be very hard for a snake to appear in your dream and as they were seen as the theriomorphic form of the god the animal form of the god alongside dogs um you could say that you've had an encounter with Asclepius if you dream of snakes as well so my my theory on how a dream spontaneous dream healing might occur is that especially in a lucid state where your body is trying to sort of biophysically respond as powerfully as possible to a dream event or to a dream scenario. So say, for example, in these instances where Asclepius performs physically impossible operations or rubs some sort of miraculous healing light infused balm on a patient in a dream, that your body tries to match that experience of profound healing and I think that if we look at something like the the, when you have an orgasm in a dream that your body is responding to dream visual phenomena and a kind of created scene in your dream physically that something could well be happening as well when you receive a miraculous healing in a dream right okay and so do we have an idea of what sort of things would prompt a person to go to these places would it be a physical malady or a mental one or or both? Yeah, it could definitely be a bit of both. There, there does seem to be, he has this um, reputation as being a like, fantastic obstetrician and obviously issues of fertility, pregnancy and healthy childbirth were of vital importance in those days. And so, and there was also a psychosomatic component to that as well. So there's definitely that element. And there was this idea as well of being like, if anyone was too ill, too close to death's door, too sort of polluted with death, that they weren't allowed across the threshold. In fact, there was a sort of another building, the other side of the sacred grove, where those people could go and die. Um, and so they did kind of keep their hands clean in that respect. You weren't allowed in there if you were about to give birth or anything like that. Right, okay. And just going back to what you were saying before, what it's interesting that um, that sleep. It sounds like sleep and dreaming were the, the association that we have them is a very is a very fast one. But was it a case that they were seen differently in those times? Quite possibly, because I imagine that the use of psychotropic substances, things like opium, were more frequent and potentially as well kind of accessing that hypnagogic trance state was something that people were more familiar with in their everyday life especially considering the kind of mythic and magical world that they existed in as well you know the concept of magic the concept of divine beings of demons of entities of spirits um makes these sorts of altered state experiences more legitimate in some ways do you know what i mean so, um, yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that there. Oh, okay, cool. Something else you, I know you've, you write about in your new book is, is dream interpretation as well. Um, what role did that play in, in places like this? And is, was dream interpretation something that is sort of similar to the dream interpretation that people today might know of? 
because I know there are there are books about the symbology of dreams that that are quite common nowadays. And was it similar back then, or was it more sort of contained within the cultural practices we've been talking about? I think it was quite similar back then, and actually, even some modern dream dictionaries have a kind of lineage that you can trace back to ancient Greeks, ancient Romans, because um, a lot of dream dictionaries um, appeared following the Aenea Critica, which was a collection of dream interpretations made by Artemidorus. And that was kind of like passed down and changed through the generations, but the sort of format's quite similar. It's just like um, every different, every every creature, every um, element of a dream has some sort of interpretation. In ancient Egypt and in, in the ancient Near East, there's very much this strong relationship between punning, wordplay and language in dream interpretation, which I personally really love. And it's something that I apply to my own dream interpretation these days as well. And I think it's why it's especially important to write dreams down, because sometimes you can see clues in the in the nature of a word that you don't necessarily make if you're just thinking about what the dream was right okay so um yeah let's talk a bit about uh, your own dream interpretation how has that developed for you what what have you taken from your studies of um, ancient cultures and uh, and apply now well the my real um fascination with ancient dreams is this idea of divine dreams which for me speak of dreams where people feel awestruck, where people feel euphoria and bliss. And that's something that I associate with lucidity. And I think that, you know, one thing I always say to people about a really good way of having lucid dreams is having a massive crush on someone. If you really fancy someone and you really have like romantic aspirations about them. And I, re- I remember this from being a teenager life. If they appeared in my dream, you would get really euphoric and excited and that would make you become lucid in a dream. And I suspect that when ancient people saw divine beings in dreams, that they became very excited and euphoric and probably would become lucid as well. And when you read some of the descriptions of, say, for example, uh, during the festival of drunkenness dedicated to the goddess Hathor in ancient Egypt, uh, a participant encounters the goddess in a kind of drunken dream state and is overwhelmed with this sense of bliss and joy and adoration um and that to me kind of definitely smacks of a lucid dream and I love the idea of lucid dreams being divine dreams because they feel special and there's this categorization of dreams in the ancient world as well where there are dreams that require interpretation by a dream interpreter or by someone who is particularly skilled at it in your family or whatever um and divine dreams which need absolutely no explanation it's just entirely obvious something really meaningful has happened and you know exactly what it is and it's it's a experience of ecstasy and then there are the sort of everyday humdrum dreams which might relate to your future or your state of mind at the time but bearing in mind that that the obsession in the ancient world with knowing the future is fascinating because we see this play out in dream interpretation as well if you look at ancient egyptian dream interpretation for example there's nothing about um analyzing the psyche of the dreamer really um it's all about what's going to happen in the future which is quite interesting because it's a less sort of ego driven personality driven way of looking at dreams hmm that's that's really interesting so how how popular were was that aspect of it the sort of divining the future i suppose 
hugely hugely important and if you look at i mean so for example in the epic of gilgamesh the epic of gilgamesh has several dreams that are all about divination and there's a lot of talk about dreaming in in that story as well and um gilgamesh practices dream incubation he constructs a house of zikuku every evening on the top of a mountain to receive dreams from the gods um and then in the ancient Near East, there's very much this idea that um, when you're born, you have these two personal gods um, that are your guardians throughout your life, your kind of cosmic guardians. And if you do something that upsets them, they'll turn their back on you. And in in order to win their favor back and prevent any bad stuff happening to you, you have to like make offerings and uh, pray to them. So... I like the idea that it's not entirely fatalistic. There's, uh, you can plead and petition the gods to win their favor back, and you kind of can check whether your 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 prayers have been successful by taking mind of your dreams, by performing harrow spicy or extra spicy, looking at the uh, a lamb's a sacrificed lamb's liver, things like this. So it's really just steeped in omens and divinatory law this idea of dreaming the future of receiving information in the dream state and i think this probably hints at um the fact that dreams are considered to happen in in this realm this kind of timeless realm or this realm that's um outside of ordinary human time Mm. yeah absolutely um is that something that you've because there's this the modern world seems to be so busy and people find it hard to fit these sorts of things into their lives um did you find that difficult when you when you practice these sorts of things yourself or i suppose is it just a case of committing to something like this if people are interested in in these sorts of practices yeah i've always given a lot of time to dreaming and i've never i remember listening to a a radio um documentary of my dad once when he was like lamenting the fact that i can't go out and get a proper job and it was, they were interviewing a load of druids. And I said, that's it, dad, I must be a druid. Because one of the druids was saying that they can't live by alarm clocks. They can never wake up at an alarm clock. They have to like go with the natural cycles of um, the planet and on this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I've struggled to do normal jobs because of dreaming, I must say. But um, I think it's worth it. <laughs> right, yeah. But starting a dream diary is a good place to begin. Yeah, I mean, it's a very sort of often trotted out, really simple. I think people are kind of like, oh, it's too easy. Um, or, you know, you wake up from a dream, you don't remember the first one. It's it's a hard thing to get started, but it really is one of the most effective ways of starting to um, dream lucidly because when you are writing an account of a dream, I mean, I've, I'm fascinated by dream memory because of my interest in the goddess Mnemosyne especially this idea a dream memory is so weird you know like the way a dream can evaporate upon waking if you don't kind of reconfirm its conscious memory is fascinating so i think there's this sort of subconscious memory system that um encodes memories in the dream state and then there seems to be this conscious memory system that encodes our waking memories and i've had dreams where i can remember previous dreams that i couldn't remember in my waking life so there seems to be almost this entire other network of um dream memory i think Mm. something else i find dreams feel so real and then when you wake up something kicks in 
to make you understand that you're in the waking world. And I'm, I'm always curious about how that works. What is it about being awake that sort of has that, gives you that signature of being awake? I, is that something that is written about much in, in the works that you've read from, from these ancient cultures? Or, or was it more that they just had an understanding of the place of dreams as a realm in general? I think there's definitely this idea of a place of dreams or some other reality in where dreams occur, you know, some some distant or timeless realm or space for dreams and that they have a reality of, of their own. They're not just kind of inventions of the mind like we tend to think of them these days. I think there is an element of that. And I think that that also perhaps suggests something about, you know, the... Um, psychologist Julian Jaynes who wrote about the bicameral mind theory which modern neuroscientists don't agree with at all but I think there's something to be said for our ancestors perhaps having a more overlapping sense of wakefulness and dream consciousness and I think that the key to that is really all about memory and the necessity the absolute necessity of memory to ancient people for survival for remembering um, ancestral storylines, for telling stories, you know, the oral storytelling tradition, people had to remember vast amounts of information in a way that we can quite easily avoid these days. Yeah, yeah, I I see what you're saying there. Something else I'm I'm curious about is that, um, I can't think of an example, but I'm sure there are cases of where people have dreamt of... um, an idea or they've been they've been given the inspiration for an invention or something like that in a dream i wish i had an example because <laughs> that would be so much better but uh. um the per- periodic table is one of those um there's like various musicians that have dreamt uh pieces of music um uh there's there's yeah there are a lot i mean uh, there's the old kind of idea thomas edison used to sit in a chair holding some ball bearings so that when he sort of drifted off in his little moments of inspiration the ball bearings would clatter in the pan underneath and wake him up and he would be able to remember what he was dreaming about um tesla's dreams are probably loads better though (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, Uh, yeah um based on what he invented anyway yeah i I imagine he had pretty exciting dreams (laughs) I think there's definitely something about the dream space which enables opportunities to contact the highest self to kind of access really connected thinking, you know. And and also, I guess the na- the visual nature of dreams enables perhaps vision visual problem solving in a way that might be impossible during wakefulness because a lot of these dreams that show solutions to problems manifest as visual representations of the problems and their solutions hmm so with what we've been talking about i'm i'm curious about the relationship between things like that and things like prophecy and and instances where people have similar experiences to being in a dreamlike state but they're awake was that something that was understood in the cultures that did things like sleep temples and and dream incubation was that something that they would would sort of be classed as being connected to this? Yeah, I think so. I don't think there was as strong, perhaps, classification of different types of altered states and trance. You know, when you look at something like the use of psychoactive 
ingredients. Um, I don't think, I think that often there was a sort of continuum there of access in and out of these other realms um, and that there were just considered to be different modes and methods of getting there. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um, something I've written down here just in, in questions is is nightmares. Um, we talked about dreams. I, I imagine that people thousands of years ago were no different to us. They had, they had bad dreams too. Yeah, there's a definite preoccupation with nightmares in the ancient Near East and in Egypt and and also even this idea of sleep paralysis and things like night terrors where people feel that they're seized by something in the night. And there's this idea of um, a nightmare being a personified demon of sorts that takes hold of you. Um, and there is the idea of um, characters like Lilith that would um, harvest semen secretions from like fevered wet dreams to create a league of evil demon children. And these were all kind of built into the mythic culture of the time. And in ancient, in ancient, in the ancient Near East, dreams could, demons were like beings of the air that could travel to a sleeper and attack them when they're vulnerable at night. There's definitely this idea of the night being a kind of vulnerable place where you were more uh, likely to be attacked by one of these demonic um, etheric beings. Mm. The, the pantheons of, of ancient cultures, I mean, and modern ones too, are, are so full of marvellous and terrifying beings. It's, it's not surprising that that sort of thing happened. But it's interesting there you, you mention um, sleep paralysis and, and earlier on you mentioned like night terrorism. Mm. Quite a lot of modern paranormal experiences happen at night time. I've, I, you know, I've listened to podcasts and read accounts of people who've encountered beings in their bedroom, like shadow people, things like that. Very real happenings, and I'm, I'm curious as to, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the answer is that this, these are things that, that again, we, we, there are accounts of going back thousands of years. But what sort of understanding did the, um, in those times, did people have of of supernatural beings were they were supernatural beings something that were that existed in the waking world or in the dream realm or or both yeah i think they existed in both and there's all sorts of sort of protective um apotropaic magic and um devices to keep demonic nefarious entities at bay so like plaques to put on your wall or in the case of ancient egyptians they would create these little clay rearing cobras that they'd place in the room where they were sleeping to kind of stop any demonic entities attacking them at night i mean there's i think it, it all comes from this idea that the sun was a protective god and light was um seen as being kind of good and revealing and protective and when the sun disappears over the horizon when it sets for the night it's leaving the world um, a bit bereft and vulnerable while it goes through the underworld before it rises again in the morning. So there's this, there's definitely this idea of the kind of caretaker, the guardian is, has left and you're now at the mercy of the spirits of the night. Mm, wow. And if you don't mind me asking, have, 
have you had experiences like that? Have you encountered what might be classed as supernatural beings in in your own dreams? No, I'm lucky. I have had some good encounters with gods and goddesses, but not any um, nefarious, evil, dark spirits. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's I good. Did, I did meet a um, a sort of scary binturong once, but I was lucid and I w- I was able to turn it into an incredibly friendly and loving binturong. So that was okay. Oh, okay. I, I'm what what is that? It's like weird. I don't. It's I don't know if it's marsupial. It's like a weird kind of tree dwelling small bear that supposedly smells of popcorn, but um, I don't think it smells much of popcorn at all. Wow. Okay. And so. What was that encounter like? How did it how did it happen? Well, this is quite frequently with lucid dreams. They start off as sort of scary encounters, and because you're scared, it makes you realise that you're dreaming because you're scared of something that's insane. So it makes you realise you're dreaming, and and that's how a lot of people get into lucidity because as a kid, they learn to not be scared in nightmares and face whatever it is that's terrifying and change it. So um, I had this dream where I was in a stable. Um, and there was this really kind of, I mean, binturongs look very lazy. Usually I've seen them in real life and they look sort of very kind of relaxed whenever I've seen them, (laughs) but this binturong was like massive. It was much bigger than a normal binturong and it was like frothing at the mouth, really aggressive. And I kind of started to get scared because I frequent, I do frequently have these dreams actually where these like incredibly aggressive, violent animals are kept just barely in these like really, really flimsy looking zoos. It seems to be a bit of a motif. So um, this binturong was in the stable and it was really aggressive and massive and terrifying. And it was just very like barely held back. And so I kind of closed the stable door and then ran down the corridor and thinking the whole time, oh my God, this binturong's coming after me. And I ran. And then as I was running, I realized I shouldn't be scared of this binturong. I have to face it because I know I'm dreaming. So the binturong came charging towards me. And I like it really did summon up a lot of courage in me to be like, I'm going to love this binturong instead. And then I had to sort of send out feelings of love and then this binturong transformed into this like really beautiful loving binturong and we we rose up into the sky and were like cruising over the world and it was lovely wow that, that, that sounds fantastic uh, earlier on it, it made me think of um totoro from my neighbor totoro <laughs> oh yeah it wasn't dissimilar to totoro but yeah binturongs you know if you're ever in a situation with binturong i don't think no i don't think they're up to much fight wise all right okay yeah. So um, throughout our conversation, we've been talking about uh, your book that's coming out very soon. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about that and sort of some of the things that are in it? Yeah, I keep forgetting that I've written a book because it takes so long from it being written to, to coming out and seeing a copy of it. So uh, my book is called Initiation into Dream Mysteries, Drinking from the Pool of Mnemosyne. I wanted to just call it what did I want to call it? I can't even remember what I wanted to call it now. I think I wanted to call it Pool of Mnemosyne, but um, the publishers decided that was didn't explain enough of the book title. So now I've got this really long book title, but that's okay. Um, it's It explores the history and the culture of the dream as medicine, essentially, in the Western esoteric tradition, but also the kind of magical and divinatory elements of it as well. And um, one thing that I really love and I'm really proud of in it is I incubated dreams throughout the book Um, There's seven chapters that explore seven different time periods. And for each chapter, I kind of incubated on 
my research and writing and looking at lots of images, really thinking about what the dream incubation experience might have been like in that time period, doing lots of research into like um, really um, every kind of aspect of the culture of that time period to imagine what the colors might have been, the landscape, you know, every, I wanted to create real context for um, my dreams. So I, I incubated for, each culture and then I created a story from that dream from the dream that I had as a result of the incubation practice and and my hope is that um reading those narrative sections which are my favorite bits of the book actually um will help give you interesting dreams when you read them and and the book also comes with um guided hypnagogic meditation like audio sleep hypnosis sessions for each chapter of the book as well. So that kind of utilizes the, the setting and the scene and the visual imagery of the narrative to take you on your own dream journey as well. Wonderful. One question uh, I wanted to ask you as someone who's studied ancient cultures and, and this aspect of them, especially I'm always intrigued with with some of the mysteries that are presented to us you know a lot of the time about some of the buildings that they were constructed you know their size and and how they were constructed there's something we're missing there's and it's not necessarily to do with technology although it might be it's it's sort of the world view like almost almost to the extent that the world was was so different that the way that they built things is 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 hard for a modern person to fathom um, from your research and study into this aspect of ancient cultures do you have an idea about what that might be uh, i mean i because i'm i'm thinking of the, the the graham hancock series that's been on recently which has caused a bit of controversy i'm curious as to what you might what your thoughts are on what we might be not so much missing but what it might be that could sort of maybe offer some answers to these questions i mean during the course of my book the deeper i went into history the more it seemed to all be about the stars and about this idea of uniting heaven and earth and i think that there was a great appreciation amongst ancient architects to harmonious cosmic proportion you know and you look at the gods who were conceived as architects and scribes they were also conceived as having a hand in cosmic order and balance and um you know when they were constructing these buildings they were thinking about being in harmony with the cosmos and we don't see the stars very much these days it's hard for us to acknowledge just how meaningful they were for ancient people and that they were you know, there's this beautiful term, I think it's in ancient Sumerian, um, which means um, the writing of heaven as a name for the, the firmament, for the stars. So it's almost as, almost as if the stars and the planets are this illuminated script because, you know, early divination and um, oracles were about finding out what's going to happen in the future by observing the stars and by observing what's happening on earth when the planets are in certain positions and keeping records over millennia so that you develop a kind of um, compendium of events. And if you look at a culture like, I don't know if Graham Hancock's going to get into this, but if you look at a culture like the first nations of peoples of Australia, 
they have a star law that is the oldest continuous star law on earth there's a an anthropologist i think charles mountford who um, was working with people in the middle of the uh, middle of australia in the outback and he was saying in his book that uh the people that were familiar with the star law there had a story and a myth that related to every single star in the night sky down to the fourth magnitude, which is extraordinary. So, I mean, I think Graham Hancock, um, I think there's too much emphasis in that Graham Hancock documentary about how archaeologists are bastards. <laughs> yeah. yeah, <laughs> And uh, they don't take him seriously enough. And, and there's also, I watched it with my daughter who's 14 and she was like, yeah, if they just stop saying tantalizing, mysterious and advanced civilization and, and there wasn't as much dramatic music, it wouldn't be that, it wouldn't seem controversial at all, really. <laughs> but, um, but I don't know. I think there's a bit too much, there's a bit too much sort of dramatic editing, lighting and um, it kind of detracts from what the story is. I think the story really is that early human beings, their first religion was the stars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And somewhat going back to what we've been talking about, I have to remember that people didn't have access to to the written word as much as, as we do. That a lot mm. of... A, I feel like there was mostly an oral storytelling tradition and an information sharing tradition. Mm. And a language of symbols as well. I mean, a lot of especially if you look at um, Aboriginal art, they they never kind of developed a, an alphabet. But the I mean, it's fascinating how that culture has perpetuated for so long, kind of almost perhaps because they didn't invent it, they didn't invent a writing system and that that symbolic language is timeless. Yeah. When, whenever I think about that, I, I always think back to the film Arrival, where, mm. where her learning an alien language completely changes her perception of the world. And I, yeah. and I think back, well, it, surely that means that in ancient cultures, their perception of reality was was very different well not maybe not very different but different at least to ours and if that's the case then maybe that could influence their how how they built things you know I I I don't know I need to expand on that idea I think but I'm always fascinated by that aspect of it yeah I think language is fascinating and completely has modulated the way we perceive the world and the way we think of our place in the world I mean I remember reading an article years ago in the New Scientist magazine about how you know, as a sort of clickbaity title, it said something like babies experience the world as if they're on LSD all the time, but they don't, you know, it takes them a while to build those foundations of language. And until then, they're just in the world, experiencing the world viscerally and not by processing it through this filter of language, creating a framework of what they anticipate. I mean, one of the, you know, I, I was talking in my book a little bit about this idea of mystery and the the lack of mystery we have in our lives these days. I think that with all the kind of conspiracy ideas that are circulating, it suggests to me this like need human beings have to have myths and stories and they want to believe in something and um, conspiracy theories or, you know, media has taken over that role, like the lives of celebrities or, or TV shows or Netflix series has taken over that role of myths and stories in, in perhaps quite an unsatisfying way. If you think about our ancestors, their, their sort of mythic language was writ large. It was like everywhere around their life. They knew all the gods. They knew the, 
the pantheon of gods. They knew their roles. Their symbols were really well established. We're kind of too chaotic now, perhaps, to make sense of our um, dreams in the same way that they might have been able to do. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point to end with. Well, Sarah, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you very much for having me. If people want to find out more about yourself, your work and your new book, how best do they do that? Um, it's probably best to look on my website because I think I've got just about everything there. And that is themysteries.org. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put that information in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Sarah. Her research and writing into dream therapy and culture in ancient times is fascinating and extensive. So if you enjoyed this episode, definitely get a hold of a copy of her new book. As mentioned in the introduction, Initiation into Dream Mysteries, Drinking from the Pool of Mnemosyne was published recently and is available from your bookseller of choice. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support some other sphere with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at spherehq, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, take good care of yourselves, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.